my name's Ken Coots, a senior research associate at the Centre for Business Research, University of Cambridge. Hello, my name's Graham Gudgeon. Like Ken, I'm a senior research associate at the Centre for Business Research, or CBR, University of Cambridge. Ken Coots and Graham Cudgeon, thanks for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. We're discussing your new research on the economic indicators for the UK economy forecast. Can we begin by talking to you by asking why you've produced this forecast now? Why is it relevant? We've produced the forecast this time of year because of the the lead-up to the statement in spending review and that we were in a position with the development of the forecasting model to be able to comment on the Chancellor's statement and the Office for Budgetary Responsibilities economic forecasts for the rest of this Parliament. So the timing was good in order to be able to make a statement of this kind. And you've also got a new economic approach, haven't you? It's been th- The modelling has been three years in the making. That's correct. It's really been as a result of a a feeling of dissatisfaction with the official forecasts from the OBR. It gradually became clear to us that the the way in which the forecasts are done depend quite strongly on assumptions rather than being empirically based. We wanted to be able to examine these issues and to put orders of magnitude on the appropriate factors so that we could compare our forecasts with those of the OBR. Graham, you have indeed, through this new macroeconomic forecast, compared your findings with those of the Office for Budget Responsibility, the one that the Chancellor George Osborne takes his lines from. Can you tell me a little bit about this macroeconomic forecast and its approach? Yes, as Ken said, we're really driven here by a dissatisfaction with the way the OBR do their forecasts. They just assume that the productive capacity in the economy and therefore output in the economy will will grow at a very steady rate, about 2.5% per annum, pretty satisfactory, keeps unemployment low, keeps the government's debt going down. The only trouble is that's just an assumption. What we've tried to do is a much more free-running model, which we base on past relationships. And when you look at that, then it seems very unlikely that the outcome for the economy for growth of GDP will be anywhere nearly as optimistic as that. We think that government austerity, the fact that government is cutting its expenditure, drive output down in the economy as a whole, and therefore start to get unemployment rising as well. This is really working through the Keynesian multiplier. You know, somebody has to spend some money, and if the government doesn't, then we're in trouble. We're rescued from trouble to some extent by the fact that the private sector, particularly the household sector, is spending, but it has to borrow to do so. And, and there's the real central message in uh, in our report, that the, the debt of the household sector is, is starting from a high level. And if this goes on, we'll reach extraordinary high levels. We'll come back to that in a minute. But Ken, you say that high household debt and extreme house prices threaten the UK economy, and the Chancellor won't balance his budget by 2019-2020. Does that mean Osborne has got it wrong? This high household debt, high house prices, can it continue? The Chancellor's spending review is predicated on the forecasts which the OBR produced, and given the relatively optimistic forecasts of about 2.4% growth per annum over the next four or five years, the Chancellor is then counting on sufficient revenues based upon that growth of the economy 
in order to be able to achieve his fiscal target by the end of the Parliament. Our view is that because those forecasts are too optimistic, that the Chancellor will not be able to reach his fiscal target, that it will remain in deficit by the end of that period. More generally, the Chancellor is focusing on getting public sector debt down, but he's not taking a sufficient account of what's happening to private debt. And our argument is that this results in a very unbalanced economy, where the Chancellor's attempt to get the deficit down is being counterbalanced by private debt increasing and the risk that we will eventually run into a credit boom, high house prices and another financial crisis. So another crisis on the scale of the 08-09 crash across Europe or perhaps bigger? We can't predict in any detail, of course, about either the timing or the scale. But what our modelling allows us to do is to highlight where difficulties are arising and processes that get underway which we can see will be unsustainable. Whether a crisis occurs in five years' time or seven years' time, if the same processes continue and nothing is done to change that, then we say there is a high risk of such a crisis. Graeme, do you agree with that? And can you take us through a few of the the headline points from it? Another crisis pending. Yes, I I think we're probably okay for the next five years. It's it's really beyond that when household debt, house prices look really quite extreme and outside historical experience. That's the sort of situation out of which come financial crises. As Ken says, it's very hard to predict exactly when it'll happen or how it will happen. Actually, we ought to be protected against the sort of crisis we had in 2008, 2009 to some extent because the banks have been forced to sort out their balance sheets and to strengthen them. But nevertheless, if house prices get extreme and then start to fall, then you're in trouble. Because once house prices are falling, of course, nobody wants to buy a house until prices stabilise. So nobody takes on the debt, so there's much less money flowing into the the private sector economy. Government revenues will start to dry up. All sorts of problems will emerge, even if the banks don't collapse. But with with falling house prices, the banks are bound to come under quite a strain. Probably not as spectacularly as in 2008. That was pretty spectacular by yeah, you know, that's a kind of once-in-a-century event. So the lessons learned from that. But if we go through these headline points from your forecast for the UK economy, you say GDP is forecast to grow at 2.2% in 2016. The government deficit is projected to stabilise at 2% of GDP. Employment growth is expected to slow in 2017 before beginning to fall in 2018. Net trade is expected to remain a drag on the UK growth. Can you just explain why these small percentage differences between your forecast, that of the OBR and the Chancellor, make so much difference to the outlook that you predict? Yes, it doesn't sound much, does it? It doesn't. <laughs> the OER are predicting GDP growing at about 2.5% per annum. And we say 2.5% this year going down through one5 perhaps ending up about 1%. Sounds a small difference, but that difference is enough to do two things. Firstly, it's enough to stop employment growing and therefore unemployment, which has been falling very nicely for the last few years and actually has saved the government. The economy hasn't been doing that well at all, but the fact that so many jobs have been created and unemployment has been falling means that most people are getting a look in if there is pain around 
around. It's been fairly widely shared. It's it's not like the 1930s, where 60% of the northeast of England are unemployed or anything like that. So that's been quite important. If GDP grows only as slowly as we think, then we think unemployment will start to rise in 2017. And we'll get back to pretty well the peak that it reached in 2008, 2009. So that's pretty bad and pretty bad for the for the government. The other thing is at one one and a half percent, not enough revenue is coming into the government to to reduce its deficit. So the government debt will stay high and the deficit will never get to, to zero. In a sense, Osborne is sort of chasing his tail here. The key thing to understand in this is as the everything the government spends is somebody else's income. So as he's cutting spending, he's cutting somebody else's income. And uh, if your income is spent, then you, you, you generate less tax income. So as he cuts expenditure, he's also cutting his income. This is the Keynesian multiplier, which the OBR don't seem to recognise, but, but we think is, is pretty important. And you as a group of economists are indeed inheriting that Keynesian tradition. We're sitting just by the Keynesian building in Cambridge. But that famous story of Keynes washing his hands in, in a gentleman's room and throwing the paper towel on the floor and are saying let's employ someone to pick it up because if people are in employment that means the chancellor gets the taxes from that employment and if people are unemployed that means the chancellor gets less revenue is that right that is right yes that's how the multiplier works yes it's, somebody has to spend some money to to get the economy going if the government refuses to the government wants to cut its expenditure all the time then it's relying on the private sector to to expand and that's the point ken and i were making earlier that therefore households have to spend their income if the economy is going to grow but the only way they can really do that is by borrowing more debt levels are now so high to start with it was okay to start this in 1980 from a low debt level and then you could build up slowly build up debt for for decades right up until the 2007 crisis 2008 crisis but by now we're starting from a high debt level so we quite quickly get into to extremes of in, indebtedness and a pretty unstable economy as a result ken does that keynesian approach really define and explain the difference between you, the Chancellor, and the OBR in your forecasting? I think the principal difference is that you you have to understand the OBR's approach to forecasting. They start with a, a notion of the potential output or the supply of what the economy can produce. And they base that on cyclical indicators as to where they think that supply currently is. Then they project that path over the next four or five years, based on an assumption about the growth of productivity in the economy and the growth of labor supply. And this is what generates their potential supply path of about 2.4% per annum. Then their forecast of actual output growth, they assume that that growth rate will converge towards the potential supply and converge relatively quickly in about three or four years. The, the reason they think that that happens is because they think that the Bank of England, through the operation of its monetary policy, will adjust interest rates so that the gap between the actual and the potential output, what in the jargon is called the output gap, that this will be eliminated in four years' time. But we think the the evidence for for such a convergence, if at all, certainly a convergence in such a short period of time, is very weak indeed. So our more Keynesian model is really forecasting on the basis of the, the spending ideas, the spending plans that Graham described for both public spending and private spending, as to where the economy will go in four years. 
That is really the big difference between our approach and that of the OBR. One way of putting this is Keynes famously said, in the long run, we're all dead. But we like to smile at the OBR and say that the OBR seems to believe that in the medium term, everything is okay. That's, that's fine. We grow at 2.5% for, forever. You know, there are never any recessions in their forecast. They're incapable of projecting a recession unless something dramatic happened, you know, like, like we were invaded by ISIS or something tomorrow. You know, Then they, they would realize there's a problem. But by and large, this is a world in which everything happens. It's the best of all worlds. Everything goes okay. But we know that t- doesn't happen. I mean, there is no period, if you look at in the data, in which we don't have quite big fluctuations. We have slowdowns. We have recessions. So one can easily see the OBR's medium-term outlook is not going to happen. Whatever else will happen, that won't that won't happen. In the short term, they're okay, actually. And they are independent from the government. They have been critical of the government in the past. This is the OBR's research is independently developed. Yes, it, it is. They are independent in the sense that the government can't tell them what to do. But on the other hand, this is the Treasury model and most of the people who work on it are ex-treasury staff you know it's it's something which has been set up and developed by the government it's also by the way pretty much the same approach that all international organizations use the OECD or or the IMF I mean it is the conventional way of doing it and we're the unconventional people here one certainly needs a degree of modesty in forecasting altogether I mean that that's absolutely true we do I think sometimes feel like the little boy in the uh, in the emperor's clothes story standing on the sidelines saying look actually you can't just assume that productivity will will keep growing and the economy will operate at, at full capacity you know that's never happened why on earth would we expect it to happen in the future but that's our starting point that can't be right can pass predictions all forecasting is to some extent a black art it is a, a compromise between various judgments and the use of, of evidence. We, in, in our model, have tried to base as much of the model on the empirical evidence for the, the kinds of behavioral relationships we use in model. We feel that the, the OBR forecasts have a high degree of judgment in them. So they are certainly using their model, but they're refining and iterating the model in so that the assumptions that they make, for example, the elimination of the output gap, will actually take place. And then the government spending plans are predicated on the forecasts that the OBR... Certainly, it's very hard to get turning points right in, in business cycles. And we know that in our past experience of forecasting, you can make mistakes. What we can say from our model is that it's showing certain tendencies that, if continued, would be unsustainable. It, it's answering those what-if questions. And it is a new model? It is a new model. It's been, been built over the last three years. It's been built on principles which we think combine very well the behaviour of the real economy, output, GDP, employment, unemployment, and the monetary side of the economy, the, the relationship between interest rates and the growth of debt. And we think that many conventional macro models fail to get a good and proper linkage between these two. And it's one of the features of our approach to bring these two together. You conclude your economic forecast for the UK economy by saying that neither the baseline forecasts nor the scenario do much to regain lost output since 2008. In both cases, GDP per head in 2020 is close to 25% below the pre-2008 trend, with the gap continuing to rise thereafter. It doesn't sound as if the economy is in a very good state. No, it certainly isn't. This is really the most important thing of our times, and it's not 
it's, it's not getting all that much attention in the... So our output will be below 2008? Well, it's, it's just about above. But on previous trends, it should have been now, what, what's that, seven years ago, it ought to have been, say, about 20% above that. So we've completely gone off, off the trend. We've had a trend which has lasted. The economy has been growing at about 2 and 2.5% since modern records began in 1848, but probably since about the early 1930s. It's, it's been on that trend. And then quite suddenly, 2008, it, it's veered away, and we're on a much lower trend now. We've lost all that output. Something cumulatively like a, a whole year's output has been lost. That's about £1.6 trillion worth of, of output. Well, so as my wife says, well, we haven't missed it very much, and you, and you perhaps don't always miss what you haven't got. But there are an awful lot of families on zero-hour contract on very low wages. It all comes out of this. And indeed, all of the chances austerity comes out of this. If the economy had carried on rising on the previous trend, he would have something like 100, 150 billion pounds more revenue. He wouldn't need all these cuts. So, so much is stemming from the fact that the economy has veered off this trend. It looks like it's never going to onto the previous trend. And the mystery in this is we don't really know why. It's not, not really well understood. And I think that's why it's probably not covered in the media much at all. We need a good term for this. We tend to call it the great dislocation dislocation in the trend. Other people talk about productivity, new technology, not employing some the same number of people, the new technology firms as they did in, in the Victorian age when we had factories. There's a lot going on in, in the wider global world, isn't there? There is, but all the new technology should act in the opposite direction. You know, it, it, it should mean we employ less people. We've been employing a lot of people at low productivity for some reason, and that's probably got much more to do with finance and the costs of, of operation. I know one keeps reading lots of articles in the, in the paper about how robots will take over, but at the same time, that the problem is low productivity and the, the almost complete lack of productivity growth since 2008. So if the robots are coming, I'm afraid they're, they're taking their time so far. This may be a problem for the far future, but it's not a problem for today. Ken, just over to you to conclude. What would you advise the Chancellor to do? You say his actions in a single economy within a globalised world are limited. But what about reflation, even if that means higher inflation? There must be some economic policy tools the Chancellor can use to get us back on track? We show in our report, we look at a a reflation scenario, one in which instead of the path of spending the, the government has set, that we have increased government spending, particularly on capital projects and focused on increasing the number of new houses being built. And we show in that forecast that not only will one get a somewhat better growth of of GDP, and that means more jobs, it means more income for the Chancellor, but also that under that programme, the extent to which the house prices would increase, it would be substantially less than what we are predicting under, under present policies, and therefore we would have a more balanced outcome. But that scenario is predicated on ensuring that the expansion takes place, but that monetary policy aims to keep inflation below 4% per annum. So it's a somewhat higher inflation target than 2%, but it's not a that much higher. And there are significant gains over the, the next four or five years resulting from that. It's also a policy which aims to ensure that public debt does not start to spiral out of control. I mean, on our alternative reflation scenario, the public debt would remain at about 80% of GDP. Now, historically, in recent times, 
that's still fairly high, and there are risks in, in that as well. But bear in mind that our forecasts are showing that the public debt may only come down to about 77% in the scenario under the present government policy, rather than 71%, which is what the OBR is claiming. The situation would be much better if many other governments were prepared to to tackle this, this problem with additional spending. Then we would have a higher growth of world trade overall, and you would have a more balanced reflation across all countries. Graham, you clearly agree with that conclusion of your report, but there are things like the global, the internet age, security, more money going in to the military perhaps and and defence. There's a lot of unforeseen factors at play in the global economy at the moment, isn't there? Does your model take account of these? Those are the biggest uncertainties, really. You know, all sorts of things can happen in the in the world economy. And I, I would say we're, we're reasonably, or, or at least in a limited way, optimistic about the world economy. Probably, I'd say that most of the risks are on the downside. You know, if China really slows down, you know, it's not buying commodities, therefore the Russians and the Brazilian economies do very badly. Everything could be much slower. I'd say from that point of view, we're relying on a reasonable future for, for the world economy. But I'd like to emphasise the point Ken made that there's not a lot that British government can do to improve matters if the rest of the world doesn't grow faster. And the big culprit here is really the euro and the Germans at the centre of this spider's web who really believe in austerity. You know, they're, they're austere sort of people in government. They don't want to spend such uh, much money. They don't want to buy much from the Greeks, so that drives the Greek economy into ever deeper a problem. But it's bad for us as well. You know, as we're famously told, you know, half of our exports go to the EU. And if the EU economy is growing very slowly, as it does, we're in a and if we opt out of the European economy as well, we're in a bind. Oh, well, perhaps you shouldn't get us going on that. This is something where having two economists in the room, you, you get at least two different answers. You may get more than that. My own personal view is to be fairly optimistic on that. We buy a lot more in imports from Europe than they buy from us. So I think it's in their interest to have a free trade agreement. And in or out, I assume we'll have free trade with, with the rest of the EU. Now, I don't know if this is too big an ask, but if Keynes were in the room today, as I said, he sat just ac- across the way. If he was here today, what would he tell the government to do? And what would he tell people to do about their personal finances? Would Keynes have any sensible advice for them? There is a great industry in what Keynes really meant and what would Keynes do if he had survived that heart attack in 1946. It's a bit of an idle speculation, really. And the man had a wonderful, flexible intellect And one hopes that he would certainly change his views according to how he saw the evidence changing. And he would base his views very much on the evidence that he saw. I think flexible thinking and taking account of the evidence would be the basis on which Keynes would be advising us now. Bonnie, you mentioned earlier the Keynes' personal approach, you know, that it's better to have people digging holes, other people filling them in, than, than to have people idle. That reflects his view that the government is always the spender of last resort. Here we have a government tr- trying to make households the spender of last resort by pushing us all the time or encouraging us to take out more debt. Our conclusion is that you can get away with that for a few years. In the end, it'll do a real problem, another financial crisis. Well, I think we'll leave it on that note, but there is some optimism, flexibility as Ken said, and perhaps redrawing one's plans. The authors of the report are Graeme Cudgeon and Ken Coots of the Centre for Business Research, Judge Business School, University of Cambridge, and Professor Neil Gibson and Jordan Buchanan of the Economic Policy Centre, 
Ulster Business School, the Ulster University, Belfast. Graham and Ken, thanks for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. I've enjoyed it and learned a great deal. Thank you, Bonnie. Many thanks, Bonnie. Enjoyed it. <laughs>